0: And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for uh, the service of so many brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, uh, seeking your will, uh, placing themselves and their families oftentimes in very difficult, even sometimes dangerous situations, all for the sake of the gospel. Father, I, I pray you would remind us often to pray for them. Lord, to pray for the believers overseas that struggle sometimes with persecution. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be willing, if you call us to go, uh, we'd be willing to send, Father, whether it's through financial support or prayer support or whatever else that looks like, Father. Just remind us of our call to go, Lord. We are sent out. And so remind us of that call, Father, whether that's international uh, missions or really right here in our hometown, Father. We're all called to be part of that process. And so strengthen us, encourage us. Allow us to go, Father. Now be with us as we open the truth of your word. Speak very clearly to us. Transform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're winding down our series that we've entitled The Sword of Truth. It's a method I've been teaching you, a process I've been teaching you. We've used it in Asia uh, Africa Central America, parts of Europe we've used it all over to teach pastors to teach local believers it's a simple model uh, it's reproducible you can memorize it you can take it with you and you can help train people really anywhere about God's word and it's based on some very simple questions and these questions are based on the sword and so I've used this example this illustration because it's pretty Simple to see and understand, and I'm gonna do this this week, and then one more week, and we're gonna move on. But there are questions you ask based on this sword, and these questions can be applied to any text, to any scripture. So, my sermon today will basically be taking these questions, answering them in Philippians chapter 3. So, the questions did you think about a sword? Right? It points up the first question we can ask about the text we're gonna study. This could be one verse or an entire chapter. What does it teach me about God? As I hold the sword, what does it teach me about man? What does it teach me about sin? What does it teach me about obedience? Right? So God, man, sin, obedience. And then we think about what's kind of the main idea of the passage. How can I apply this to my life? And you can take those questions and you can use them, whether it's at home or with friends in a Bible study in your community or at work or, or wherever the Lord leads you. You can take these questions and you can teach Scripture. You can have great discussion. Imagine sitting at home at night with your family, going through Scripture, asking these simple questions. And so we've kind of taken this model. We've talked through it for the last several weeks. I've, I've modeled it for you. I've helped you understand how to use it. And so now we just kind of encourage you to take this model and use it however the Lord leads you. right? Whether that's small devotions with your kids or at work or whatever, you now have a tool that you can use That's reproducible, That's usable wherever you go. So let's jump right in this morning. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The words of Paul, and we're going to answer these questions together this morning. Philippians 3, 7, we have it on the screen as well. But whatever gain I had, he's looking in the past, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of their surpassing worth, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now we're going to stop there and we're just going to work through these questions, right? So the first question we come to this morning, what do I learn about God? So we're going to take these few verses, we're going to think through, what can I learn about God? This is God the Father, Jesus the Son, or the Holy Spirit, right? What can I learn about God? And in these few verses we talk a lot about Jesus, So if you were sitting at home with your family, with your kids, uh, doing this Bible study yourself, you start working through verse 7, what are some of the things I can learn about Jesus? I've got several of them up on the screen. The first one we see is that Jesus is Lord, right? And this is coming right from the text, right? I'm not inserting anything in, I'm taking out. Verse 8 is very simple. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Now, just imagine the discussion you could have with your family about Christ as Lord, right? We're we're really good about making him Lord of most things. We're not always great about making him Lord of all things. And typically, we like to choose what he's Lord of, don't we? Like, I'm going to give you most of this stuff, Lord. I'm going to give you most of these things. But uh, my financial books at work, I'm keeping, right? I'm not going to let you have any of that. Or the way I talk to my employee or to my boss, I'm I'm not going to give you any of that. Or the way that I respond to my spouse when I'm not happy with him or her. Or or the way I discipline my children when I get angry. I'm not going to give you those things. I'm happy to give you most of it, but I'm not going to give you all of it, right? If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of all. And So just imagine the discussion you could have with your family, even with yourself, as you think through what this looks like. So one of the things we learn about God is that he is Lord, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. The next one is that Jesus is greater than anything in this world. Paul uses this idea of surpassing worth, and we're going to come back to that here in just a few minutes. The next thing, righteousness comes through faith in Christ, right there in verse 9. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. And then the last one, Jesus suffered, died, and was resurrected in verse 10. Now, all these things come right from this text. You don't need a seminary degree or a Bible college degree or to spend any real time studying through any scripture to take this simple question, work through these verses, pay attention and answer the question. It's simple. It's a simple model you can take. And I want you to notice it's neat what Paul does here because we kind of get this great picture of Christ and his greatness and his sufficiency and righteousness. He's Lord. He's greater than all the things in the world. We have salvation and righteousness through him. He suffered, died, and was resurrected, right? It's just a beautiful picture. Like if you're going to summarize the gospel to somebody, if you want to summarize Jesus, these few verses would be helpful because there's a lot you can say about him in this passage. But each week, if you've been with us, you'll know that I kind of take one idea. I kind of take each question and answer it. And then I take one idea and really kind of delve in and spend some time thinking And the one I want to talk about this morning, the one I want to think through is the idea of the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Now, I want you to notice, I'm not just making this up. This isn't about my opinion. This is about what the text actually says. So let's look at verse 9. Philippians 3, 9. We can see that on the screen. I want you to see what it says about righteousness. Paul's talking about being found in him. That's Jesus. Now, watch. Not having a righteousness of my own. Right, we, we understand that righteousness doesn't come from ourselves. Now, we struggle sometimes with self-righteousness, don't we? All of us do. But Paul reminds us, listen, this righteousness doesn't come from myself. It's not really about what I think. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God depends, excuse me, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. So Paul says, listen, there, there's a righteousness that we need It can't come from ourselves. It can only come from who? Christ. And we receive that righteousness through faith in Christ. Now, righteousness is is, is one of these kind of churchy words that sometimes we hear and we don't fully understand, right? There are sometimes big church words that we get confused by. Justification, sanctification, glorification, righteousness, right? These are words that we're not quite certain what they mean, so let me define it and then help you understand why it matters to you. Righteousness can be defined very simply as one who is right or behavior that is morally justifiable. Now, we all like being right. And I would hope we would all like being morally justifiable using that definition. The problem is, as believers, we know that we aren't, right? We know that we make mistakes. I can remember when we used to do the, the faith outline, those of you that have been around for a few years, faith was, a, it was an evangelistic tool that we used and memorized and then you could take it in the community, share your faith with people, and we used it for a long time here. It's very successful here at our church. And I can remember going into people's homes and talking about this idea of sin Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I can remember telling these people, listen, this doesn't just mean one person or a few people or just you. This means everybody. And I can remember saying that that includes me. We we've all sinned, right? No one. Is righteous. That's what the scripture teaches. So we come to this kind of dilemma, this confusing issue. If we're called to be righteous, which we are scripturally, but we know in our hearts that we're not righteous, we know we've made mistakes, we know that we're sinful, we know the the, the baggage that we bring to the table, but yet we're called to be righteous. How do we reconcile those two things? Paul says, listen, it's not about a righteousness that comes from ourselves, it's not even about a righteousness that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what you have to understand about Jesus, and this is the beautiful picture, right? When Jesus died on the cross, remember, Jesus was a perfect man, never sinned. So he walked to Calvary, by the way, and he willingly gave himself up, he wasn't arrested against his will. He allowed himself to be arrested, he allowed himself to be beaten, he allowed himself to be crucified so he could take our place. And so when he died, what happened was, all the sin that we had committed in our lives, past, present, and future, for all believers for all time, by the way, rested on him. And so when the Lord looks at us, praise the Lord, he doesn't see Adam for his sinfulness, he doesn't see all my failures, he doesn't see all mistakes that I've made, instead he sees the righteousness of Christ that's been placed upon me. He doesn't see me. He sees the blood of Jesus. And that's what the scripture teaches. It's not a self-righteous thing. It's not about the law. It's nothing we can do ourselves. We're only made righteous. We're only made right. We're only made perfect because of what Christ does in our lives because of his sacrifice. And so we see verses like Romans three twenty one and following says now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe right Romans 5 19 says for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous now this is why this matters to you this is important Right? I can remember having these conversations with people About salvation, and it still happens some this day. Or, or I'll invite somebody to church, and I've had people say to me, "Listen, I know about your church. It's a good church. I'd I'd love to come to your church, but before I come to your church, Adam, I need to get some things right in my life." I've had people say that to me, like I need to fix some things. That there's some problems and issues that I'm dealing with. Uh, Maybe there's some sin in my life. There's some things that I need to kind of correct. Let me get all that stuff straight because I know if I come to church like this I'll be a hypocrite. By the way, church is filled with hypocrites, right? Right? Myself included, like I'm the chief right here. But they say I need to get this stuff straight. Man, I need to fix this Am I-? and as soon as I get this fixed then I'm coming back to church, right? That's opposite of what the scripture teaches, right? That's the beauty of righteousness. You don't have to remove all the baggage and all the bad stuff and get rid of it. Instead, what you do is you take all that stuff and you lay it at the feet of the cross and of Jesus and his righteousness covers it all. And that's a beautiful picture of grace, isn't it? That's salvation, And so if you come here thinking, man, I've got to to kind of straighten things out and fix things so the Lord will be happy with me, you're you're missing the order, right? You've got to give it all to Christ. You've got to accept his forgiveness. One writer said it like this, we are accepted as righteous and treated as righteous by God. Now, just hear that again. We're accepted and treated as righteous by God on account of what the Lord Jesus has done. He was made sin. We are made righteousness. Righteousness. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner, though he was perfectly holy and pure, and we are treated as if we were righteous, though we are defiled and sinful, all because of Christ. So, so what do we learn about God? We learn of his majesty, of his suffering, of his death, but we also learn about his righteousness through Christ. now here's the second question right what can I learn about man let's go ahead and pull that question up, right we got a, a pretty good understanding of who God is in these passages a pretty good understanding of righteousness let's think about what it means for man right the first one is and we're going to come back to this this is kind of the big idea we must count our gain as loss I'm going to come back to that one and then the second one, verse nine again when I said a minute ago our righteousness comes through Christ now, I want to think about this idea as gain and loss just for a minute. Because Paul, in his writings, if you've ever read a lot about Paul, you understand there are always these interesting comparisons. And he's always challenging our thinking and helping us understand the way things used to be and maybe the way things ought to be. So he makes this comparison between gain and loss. Now, I want you to see it yourself. Remember, I don't ever want to kind of make anything up. I want you to see it with your own eyes. So let's look at verse 7 and 8 again. And I want you to notice how Paul talks about the idea of loss. You're going to see it three separate times here. But whatever I gain I had, excuse me, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss. There's the first time, for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss, there's number two, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered, here's number three, the loss of all things, and then he makes the, the, the statement here, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, listen, all of the old stuff that I used to think was wonderful and incredible and a gain for me, I now count as loss. In fact, it's not just a loss, it's a rubbish. And the word they're using in the Greek, and I'm not going to go into detail, it's a lot more than just the garbage you throw in the trash. Imagine an outhouse and all that goes down in there. That's what Paul has in mind here in the original Greek. It's bad. And so we think about the things that we think are good, the gain that we've had, all the things that we love about this world. Paul says, listen, that is all rubbish. It's garbage compared to Christ. Now I'm gonna make kind of a simple, silly analogy for you maybe to help you see it a little bit better. How many of you used to have a flip phone? Just go ahead and raise your hands. If you owned a flip phone, raise your hands. Look at that. Look at that. Okay, oh, you can put them down. Now those things are Cool. They were really, really cool. So I'm going to do, we're going to do a little experiment with those ones. I want you to go ahead and take those, the flip phones, take your flip phones out. Go ahead and flip them open and hold them up for me. Go ahead and take those flip phones out now. Go ahead. I'm waiting. Flip phones. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? One. Look, we had one in the last service too. There you go. <laughs> oh, we got two. Mr. Will? We got two flip. I had one in the last service. Okay. So except for you two, right? Everybody else will understand this illustration. I'll never get when we got our first phone, right? Uh, Back in like 97, first cell phone, 96, 97, 98, somewhere in there, late 90s. And I I gave it to Amy as a Christmas present, right? And I was so cool that I had the phone turned on. And as she was opening it, I called it from the landline so it rang. uh, That's how cool it was in 97, guys. So just a real smooth operator there as she opens her up her flip phone. We thought those things were really cool. And at the time, they were Right? They were state-of-the-art. and People loved them. And the either you could have a phone call driving down the road. You can't even do that anymore now, I guess, in the state of Georgia legally, right? Talk on the phone as you're somewhere else outside of your house. Even send a text. It's pretty incredible, right? The technology was amazing. But we kind of see now that because none of us ever had flip phones, we don't have our flip phones anymore. Maybe they're not as cool as they used to be. Now, my guess is most of y'all uh, several years ago when you got rid of the flip phone didn't keep it as a keepsake, did you? You probably don't have it stored on your mantle at home you probably didn't frame it and put it up in the in the family room maybe you gave it to your kids it's a silly little gift but what did most of you do with your flip phones just right in the trash right so so just think about this what used to be incredible for you like cutting edge man this was the coolest thing in the world is now what trash it's rubbish it's garbage it's long since gone to the landfill And I promise you in 15 or 20 more years, the iPhone you have or whatever Galaxy phone you have will probably seem like rubbish to you. Why? Because something bigger and better came along. We get that on kind of an earthly standpoint. But my concern is for far too many believers that even though we see this in Scripture, even though though we understand this teaching of Jesus, far too many of us see the things of the world as more important right now than the things of Jesus. That's not what Scripture teaches. We, we, we got to get to this point where we see the things of the world as unmatched compared to Christ. We got to begin to see the world as, in his words, rubbish compared to the greatness of Jesus. Now I think about Paul and, and he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And I think about how his life was radically changed. And so I'm going to read you just a very quick excerpt. This is from Acts chapter 9 about Paul and about his conversion because there's something that interesting happens in his conversion I want you to see and hear. Acts chapter 9 beginning in verse 3. Now as he went on his way he approached Damascus. This is Paul. Saul at the time by the way. After this he's going to be known as Paul. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me? Remember Saul used to persecute believers. He used to kill and hate Christians. And he said... Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now skip down several verses. God has used a man to lay hands on him and kind of impart the the teachings of the Lord to him. Verse 18 of Acts 9 says, And immediately, this is Paul, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. Now, for Paul here, Saul, this is obviously a a physical transformation. He couldn't see for three days. The Bible says when he was finally enlightened, the scales fell from his eyes, and he could see again. It's certainly a, a physical idea, but built into this text is the spiritual understanding as well. Right? He was blinded to the things of the Lord before. He couldn't see. He didn't understand the greatness. In fact, he persecuted people that believed in Christ. But after his true encounter with the Lord... God opened his eyes physically, and he opened them spiritually. And Paul began to understand for the first time the things that used to be gained for him, he now sees as loss. And I just wonder where we are in our walk. Are are we still consumed by the things of the world? Are those things more precious to us than Jesus are we much more interested in seeking out the things of the world than we are seeking out the things of Jesus? And so we kind of kind of come to this place in our lives where we have to make these decisions. A- am I really willing to see the things of the world as lost? Am I really willing to give things up for Jesus? Am I really willing to trust Christ no matter what it costs me? And so, so we see this beautiful picture of, of who Christ is, who God is, who we are in that. Question three, I'm going to kind of skip over the idea of sin. There's not a lot about sin in here, but I had an interesting phone call this week. It's neat how people are responding to this sermon series. Uh, One of our dear ladies has been here for years and years and years called me. And she said, sometimes, Adam, when you're going through this and you don't mention specific sin, she said, I always believe that if there's something that the Bible teaches and we don't do it, then that is a sin. And she's exactly right. So you can always take from this truth that there's something that's taught in here that you're not doing, that's sin. And that's something you can kind of wrestle with and pray through on your own. But I'm going to go to question four because we need to wind this down. What are we supposed to obey, right? So we've learned about God. We've learned about man. Sin. There's not a lot about sin in this particular text. What are we supposed to obey? Well, One of the things that Paul does in this teaching is he sets off these verses with the phrase, I may. And he does it three or four different times from verses 7 to 11. So there's several things that he talks about, several things that he does that I'm going to pull up on the screen right here. The first one he says we should do is gain Christ, found in verse 8. I'm going to come back through these in just a second. We should be found in him, verse 9. We should know him, verse 10. We should share in his sufferings, verse 10. We should become like Jesus, verse 10. And we should attain resurrection, verse 11. Now look, we've already seen that this scripture gives us a pretty good foundation of who Jesus is, his righteousness, salvation that he offers, the free gift, how he died on the cross for our sins. We've seen that. We've seen what we're supposed to do in that process, receive that righteousness from him and then see the world as lost compared to Christ. And then Paul gives us some very specific things we're to obey. But I want you to notice this interesting built into this is kind of the salvation experience. Paul says, listen, th- this is what it looks like to find salvation in Christ. The first thing is you gain Christ and be found in him. Right? Verse 8 kind of gives us this real clear picture. We, we need to gain Christ. That comes by repenting our sins, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so if you're here this morning, you say, yeah, I've, I've never really gained Christ Uh, Maybe this is my first time ever in church and I've never really heard this teaching or maybe I've grown up in church and I thought I did this, but I never really did. If if you're confused or or don't quite understand about salvation or about gaining Christ, in in just a few minutes when this service is over, I'm gonna be standing right down here. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to explain to you more. Romans 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For at the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Right? So, so we, we gain Christ. Then verse 10, we, we know Christ. Right? There, there's the deepening of understanding. Right? A lot of people think that once they accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, that's the end of the story. It's really the beginning of the story. Like if you think that salvation means you've got kind of the fire uh, ticket or the, the ticket to heaven, you kind got of to put that in your back pocket, and then for the rest of your life, you kind of live the way you want to live, you're missing the truth of Scripture. What salvation means is now you've started your journey, and you've got the rest of your life now to be found in Him, to know Him, to share in His sufferings oftentimes. Right, we, we see suffering as something to be avoided, but that's not always what the scripture teaches. And then kind of to become like Jesus, there's the process. Right, the more we study, the more we read, the more we pray, the more we become like him. I'm reminded of Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed right, by the renewal of your mind that You may be testing what what is the will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's this idea of being transformed, of of being changed, of becoming like Jesus. And then one day, through salvation in Christ, we attain resurrection with him in heaven. So there's this beautiful kind of picture of salvation and and growth in Christ, becoming like Jesus, eventually attaining salvation. And so we take from this the fifth question. What's What's the main idea of this passage Find hope and joy in Jesus. And if you're not finding hope and joy in Jesus, you're missing the blessings of the Lord. Give your life to him. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. Spend the rest of your life in great hope and joy, living for him, growing in your faith. God has given us this beautiful picture of the resurrection of Christ, of his majesty, of his glory, of power, of how we're called to be like him. We've just got to figure out now in our lives how to live it out. Now, I'm going to finish with some homework, right? We've got one final week to go. I'm going to do this one more time next week. Then we're going to shift gears, and I've got a different series that I've been praying about that I'm excited about, but I'm going to give you the homework for next week. Go ahead and pull it up, Luke chapter 9, 23. I'm going to read the first verse to you, actually the first two. Uh, I saved the best, not the best, but this is a really good one for last. This is what Scripture says. This is Jesus talking. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, you want to have a great discussion with your kids, ask them what it means to take up their cross. Ask them what it means to lose the things they love for the sake of Jesus. I think you'll be amazed at how this passage of Scripture can transform the way you think and the way you live. Now, let me pray for us this morning as we finish up. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it's, it's clear and understandable, Father. We thank you that you've given us in these passages of Scripture just a, a beautiful reminder of exactly who Jesus is, of what salvation in Christ looks like. Lord, you've given us a, a path of forgiveness and, and righteousness, not from our own selves, not from the law, but through Christ. And so if I pray, I pray Lord, if, if there's someone here this morning that, that has never fully grasped that or doesn't understand salvation or maybe has never given his or her life to Christ, that this would be the morning. Open up their eyes, Father, spiritually, just like you did with Paul, to see the surpassing greatness of Jesus. Help them to understand there's nothing better. Open up their eyes to this truth, Father, and we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory.